0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is UXK. 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 UXK.
1: UXK. UXK.
0: UXK. UXK. I'm your host, Lee Allen Arredondo. Hello and welcome to season two. We have a really special season of UX cake in store for you with many fantastic topics and guests. If you're new to the UX cake podcast, first of all, thanks for checking us out. This is a podcast that covers the many layers that make up our profession as creators of experiences. Every episode, we talk to leaders in the field to get practical advice on how to get the best outcomes for our work, our teams, our users, and our careers in UX. I am super excited to kick this season off with my conversation about changes in our design discipline with Don Norman. So Don Norman was already a very well-known name in the field when I started in product design over 20 years ago, so I felt especially honored to have a chance to talk with him about our discipline. Don is currently leading the design lab at UC San Diego, where he spoke to me from in between trips around the world, spreading the practice of design to change the world. You might know Don from his book, The Design of Everyday Things, or maybe you know him as a co-founder of the Nielsen Norman Group, or any one of the many other very influential writings and talks and work that he has created over the last three decades. Don is generally recognized as one of the early framers of this discipline that we call UX uh, or user experience, which is the term that he actually coined while he was a VP at Apple in the 90s. But he really doesn't like the term UX, and it's not because it's not a good description, but he feels it's generally misused and overused, and it's lost its original intent. He talked a little bit about that in our conversation, but mostly we talked about why and how designers and researchers in our discipline should be changing the world. Don is one of the keynote speakers at this year's IXDA conference, Interaction 19, which is in Seattle this year. So we're very excited to be working with them on bringing you interviews from many of their interesting presenters and speakers. It's a really fantastic lineup of content this year. So go check that out at interaction19.ixda.org. So thank you, Don, so much for joining me on UX Cake today. I know our listeners are very excited to hear from you.
1: Thank you. It's my pleasure.
0: So you're going to be a keynote speaker at the upcoming Interaction 19, and the theme of that day is discipline in flux. So I thought we could talk a little bit about uh, not just how our discipline is changing, but possibly even how you feel it should be changing. You've long been a champion of design as making something more than just pretty, of making it usable and fitting human needs. And I think that's something that many, most UX practitioners have to spend a lot of our time. and our effort explaining what we do and showing the value of experience design. And you've shown many people how to do this. You've written books about it. But recently you've said, I've heard multiple times that as a discipline, we need to go out and make a difference in the world. So I'm curious if you're saying that perhaps championing usable and human centered products and services isn't enough anymore.
1: Uh, I've been concerned about the UX community, which is, um, you know, it originally started because I thought that we were focused too much on the details of what we were doing. And details are very important. But knowing what it is we're doing is more important than doing it well. We have to make sure we do the right thing. So doing the wrong thing well or doing the unimportant things well, well, yeah, that's not where we should be going. User experience to me means experience. It means your life. It means the way you interact with the world. It means the way you interact with people. For some reason, user experience has come to mean things that are much simpler. It's uh, building websites. I mean, a huge number of the people who claim that they are user experience professionals spend their time building websites. Now, building websites is good, it's important. It's an important part of our lives, but that's not the most critical thing that will change the world, that will get rid of poverty, that will get rid of homelessness, that will increase everybody's educational level, that will enable and empower people, that will solve the health problems in the world. And that's what I think we should be focused on, that we need to look bigger.
0: What are some examples of that in a real-world situation for many hundreds, thousands of UX designers who are, you know, working at a Microsoft or Amazon or a nonprofit? Even what do they do to go out and change the world?
1: One of the difficulties of the entire design profession, not just UX, is that we tend to be in the middle levels. Uh, we are basically the tools that other people use to do whatever it is they wish to do. And what I want to do is change that. I think that we should be in the driver's seat, uh, that we should be actually determining what actions take place, what activities we do, what kinds of products we develop. So if you work at a Microsoft or an Apple or an Amazon or any of the large companies, you're apt to be in the bottom to middle layers of the company and you have remarkably little power to determine what should be done. So how do we change that? Well, first of all is to try to get our management to understand the great power of design. And and here's where the power is. Almost every discipline is specialized. Design is no exception, by the way, because we have graphic designers and we have interaction designers, and those two often do not understand each other. They speak different languages. And then there's industrial design, Uh, And then there's service design, and there's a wide variety of design fields. That's, by the way, not a problem. That's true of every single discipline in the world. If I say I'm an engineer, that's meaningless. What kind of an engineer? Uh, And if I say I'm a civil engineer or an electrical engineer or a computer scientist, even that's meaningless because there are so many specializations within those areas. So that's okay. But one thing that's different about design from most of these other fields is that we actually create things. And in order to create, you cannot be a specialist. The specialist can do the components, but to understand how to build the entire product requires you to be able to understand all of the different specialties that come together because we have to understand human problems and human needs and human behavior and what the fundamental needs really are. We have to understand the different technologies that are involved. We have to understand not just design, but manufacturing or programming and delivery and service the complete story. So first of all, we need to do that. I just was asked recently back this morning on a LinkedIn post, how do you deal with someone who's always complaining about the aesthetics? How do we get them out of that mindset? And my answer is aesthetics are very important. When your client complains about aesthetics, take that seriously, but use that as an opportunity to show that we can go beyond aesthetics. We can decide what it is you're going to be building in the first place. It's actually much more important than the details.
0: Let me delve into this a little bit, the need to not be a specialist and what that actually means. I can understand in the context of we need to understand human behavior. We need to understand much more than just how things look on the page even how systems work we need to understand humans as part of that system but specifically what do you mean when you say we should not be specialists do you mean that we should be experts in all these other areas development and uh, visual design as well as human behavior and psychology so the
1: answer is actually a bit more complex than that First of all, we need specialists. We need people who are real experts in each of the individual components. The difficulty is that, yes, we need people like that. And yes, we need people who can make beautiful, wonderful things, but we also need people who actually decide what it is we should be doing. And I think they should come from our community, not everybody, but enough. So why aren't some of the UX people now CEOs of companies or at least chief technology or chief product officers of technologies? That requires the people who wish to do that to go off and learn more about the business, to learn more about the other activities in the company, maybe get a master's in business administration, an MBA degree. It requires a different kind of mindset. Because, look, when you're actually doing a product, in my opinion, the most important person is the product manager. It's who's in charge of the product. Because every discipline thinks that whatever they do is more important than the others. The industrial designer thinks they're more important than the graphic designer, and the graphic designer thinks they're more important than the interaction designers. And all of these people think they're more important than the programmers, and all of these people, the programmers and all of the designers, think they're more important than marketing, and marketing always ruins what they've done. And all that's nonsense. We're all a team trying to make something work better. And so we need people who can step back and see the broad picture. And yes, we need the people who are specialists. So we need the other people who know how to bring the specialties together and how to balance the requirements of one against the requirements of the other. And now we're just talking about big companies. You mentioned, well, there are nonprofits. The nonprofits are the ones who actually will change the world because they have a mission Each of the nonprofits has a larger mission, and it isn't to make money. It's to make people's lives better. And that's, I think, where we need more focus. And yes, if you let me, I will tell you more about that.
0: (laughs) I would love to hear more about that. It sounds to me like you're talking about this need for us to be leaders, not just in our own field, but become business leaders, like you said, in the c suite is that what you mean by changing the world or solving big problems?
1: No. However, uh, that kind of mentality to understand the larger picture, to understand the complexities of actually accomplishing something meaningful in the world, that is common to whether you want to get to the C-suite or whether you want to I'll talk about some of the work we are trying to do in a few seconds. Not everybody should be in the C-suite and not everybody will enjoy it, but we need more people who come from the design community there. Right now, they will either come from business and marketing or in lesser number of cases, from engineering. And very rare is it that someone comes from design. There are some, and there are some chief design officers who are C-level people, but it's rare. Because look, we understand people. Why are we making products? Why are we making services? Why are we building things that we build? It's for people. Wouldn't it be better if we understood people? It's really amazing how little we understand people. Let me give you an example, recycling. I've been doing a, a survey of people. Do you recycle? Oh, yes. Do you understand the rules of recycling? Well, yeah, of course. I put the trash in this one and I put the recyclable in this. What's recyclable? And as I get into what is recyclable and what is not, it's amazing, no one understands it. Can you recycle plastic?
0: <laughs> it's very complex. There are so many types of plastic. And the rule is different
1: with each recycling company.
0: Yes. Who can remember?
1: I have to redo my driver's license next Friday. And I have to take the exam again. And I I hate these exams. I was just reading this morning. And how far away are you allowed to park from a fire hydrant or a fire station? Well, it turns out it's 15 feet. How far away must you park from a railroad track? Seven and a half feet. Every single one of these things has a different number of feet, a different number of this. And look, if you understand people, you'd say, you know, people can't remember all the little details and which number goes with which and all the recycling details. Life would be simpler if we simply said you can recycle all plastics or you can recycle no plastics or unless the plastic has this red dot on it, you can't recycle it. But every company has to follow the same rules. Every distance is 15 feet. Or perhaps you might say there's a 15 foot and a seven foot. Seven and a half is stupid. Who's going (laughs) to know whether it's seven feet and six inches or not? You might have two distances for critically important things and less dangerous things. And there could be a rule that even let you know what size. The same with recycling. Instead of every company trying to say, oh, we invented a new way of splitting out the leather from the metal when things are bonded together, but the other companies can't do it, they're not allowed to do it. And I know that would make people angry, but if people are recycling wrong, you have to throw away the entire batch. So if we made things simpler, then we would actually be better off. You have to take the larger picture. You have to understand people's behavior in the whole. Whereas most people are focused upon the safety rule that we've enacted without thinking about the millions of other rules for which this is a special case or the recycling rules where everyone is different because everyone is trying to do the best, the most economical. And as a result, they are failing because when people do the activities wrong, you often have to throw away huge truckloads of material because, well, there was dirt, there was food contaminating these recyclables.
0: This sounds very similar to something else that I've heard you talking about lately, Tell me if you don't think that there's a connection here but you talked about the need for the democratization of design there's not enough designers to go around for all the people problems in the world so creating the toolkits and tools to give to people to solve these problems themselves and for designers to act as mentors and teachers Is that sort of the connection here, where we're creating the tools and toolkits so that the people who run, who make the rules for the recycling company, are looking at the big picture and understanding the human problems?
1: That's an interesting connection. Two different points here. One of them is, yes, we don't have enough designers around and the people in the the recycling companies or who make the motor vehicle rules or regulations. Uh, often are completely unaware of these kinds of issues. And yes, we need better educational tools and better training. And of course, there ought to be more designers working in these companies or working with the lawyers and the lawmakers. The other argument you were making is, yes, that's what my talk in Seattle was going to be about. I'm actually on my way to um, the United Arab Emirates where I'm giving a talk to the World Government Assembly. And then I'm going from there to India, where I'm going to two different major cities of in India, all of which to put into action what I'm now calling uh, community driven design, democratization of design. And let me talk about what that is.
0: I'd love to hear more about that.
1: One of the things that has long annoyed me is the way that design schools all around the world actually love to hit on important societal problems. And so it's wonderful to have your design students go off to India or Africa or some remote region of the world and they spend a few weeks there and they come back and they say, we discovered these fundamental issues where they don't have good water, they don't have good health, they don't have good this, that or the other. And they figure out some very brilliant solution to those problems and they publicize it and they often win design prizes. And then if they actually build it. Designers seldom actually build the things they talk about, but if they actually manage to get it built and they introduce it back into the community, it completely fails. Either they can't understand it or they can't use it or it violates a lot of their customs and cultures, or it works fine, but when it breaks, they can't fix it. So this, by the way, is maybe a problem in design schools, but we spend billions and billions and billions of dollars in foreign aid. And... Most of it is wasted, and most of it is not usable. And even though it's well-intentioned, and even though the experts who say, well, here's what your problem is, and here's what your solution is, it's a, it's a very difficult, complex problem. So it's a very complex, difficult, expensive solution. Expert opinion is generalized. That's what we do as experts. We have this general knowledge, and then we, we tell people how to use it, but no. Unless you understand the culture and the community and the facilities and the resources of that community, and unless that community buys in to those ideas, it will fail. And there's a wonderful book by a man named Easterly who's in the uh, aid community. It's called The Tyranny of Experts. That when you send experts in, they may mean well and they may be well-educated, et cetera, et cetera, but they don't understand the local community. They can't because it takes years or even decades to understand it. But there are really creative people in all these communities. And as you said, there are close to 8 billion people in the world, not enough experts anyway to go around. Moreover, though, the people who live there, they don't have to do ethnography. They don't have to do a study what the real issues are. They've lived it. They understand it. They tinker. And as a result, they've often come up with creative solutions. And so what we want to do is we want to go around the world and find these people and then facilitate, uh, help them, uh, empower them. Also, uh, for some, some areas, they might need more education. For example, if you're trying to get clean water, well, it isn't enough to have water that looks clean. It actually has to be medically safe. You have to kill all the germs, and so that requires some expert knowledge. But how that expert knowledge is then uh, done might be best decided locally. And uh, if you're doing medical things like treating diabetes or uh, other problems, you do need some expert medical knowledge. However, again, it's much best done by the people who have the problems and have lived with them and understand the requirements that they have. And so what we want to do is empower these people and then communicate the results. And, you know, one of the world's best educational institutions is the Internet. Almost anything you think about, if you search, you will find a video or you'll find a little article that gives you really good information. Part of the problem is there's too much information and some of it's wrong. So one of the things you want to do is curate this and help help sort of authenticate and and check on the validity. But we think that this democratization of design, community-driven design, so this is bottom-up design, but it has to be combined with top-down expert knowledge. And that's what we want to do. We now are running a project in Eastern Kentucky in Appalachia, where it's very difficult to get the health care because the mountain roads are a bit remote and in the winter they're snowed in. And the good health care can be several hours away in a long drive. And we are also about to start a project in Africa. We are about to start a project in India, which is why I'm on my way to India. And we also want to do some projects here in San Diego, because almost every major city in the world actually has the same kinds of problems. But again, it's to enable the people who live there to come up with a solution, guided by expert knowledge.
0: I also feel like this relates to anyone who's listening to this, even if they can't go around the world to help with a community in India. I see a, a very similar correlation in the organizations that we are working in that ux designers and researchers are in very very few of our organizations and companies have enough design and research uh, resources and so i think there's a, a maybe a little bit of a wariness among designers uh, to kind of help pms and developers become part of doing design, but I think there's a need for this community-driven design in our companies and organizations as well. We call ourselves the user champions, but don't we want all of our team to be a user champion and to be design thinkers?
1: Absolutely. One of my friends is uh, Eric von Hippel, he's a professor in the business school at MIT, and he uh, for a long time has been championing lead user innovation. He's now moving on to what he calls open innovation, but his work actually in many ways forms a background of the work that we are doing here at University of California, San Diego. In fact, he came and spent an entire month with us last January, so we're hoping to get him again this January. What he said was, look, if you're in a company and you're trying to figure out what innovations, what you should do is just walk, go around to all your customers who are using your products. And you'll discover a bunch of them who say, you know, I love your product, but it really doesn't meet my needs. So look look, I did this, or I did that, or I, you know, I added this programming thing, or I built this little extra thing that I add on top of your CAD machine, or whatever. And these people are very clever and they've often figured out what the real issues are and they figured out solutions. So why not build on them? Thank them very much and ask them to help you and create the new product from there. The designers can come in there and make a wonderful job, can often do a better job, but the most important insight is what it is you should be doing. And that can come from the people who use the products. And it doesn't matter whether you're thinking of uh, trying to give clean water to some remote village or whether you're trying to improve the cooking utensil that your company makes.
0: So ask the user.
1: (laughs) Well, I don't believe in asking. I believe in watching and learning and visiting and interacting you know because first of all when you ask people they often try to rationalize and give you a good rational description which is often wrong because we often don't even know how we're coming up with our ideas so when you people ask you well i'll make up a reason but it's not right second of all there are lots of little things i do to make my lives easier that are very powerful but when you ask me i'll never think of telling you so here's one that i will never think of telling you but <laughs> but I do tell people, I walk around in my wallet with a whole bunch of tiny little colored dots. And whenever I find a place where I'm confused, I stick it on the place. So keys, you put a key into a lock and which way you turn it, right or left? Well, everyone is different. And so I put a little green dot in the direction I should turn it. And so actually you you walk around the building I'm in now and you'll see all the various floors and doors, little green dots. (laughs) <laughs> and people say, oh, that means Don Norman was here. And then they say, it really does work. It helps me. So it's a tiny little thing. I used to do that in my automobiles because we have multiple automobiles and you're driving them. Which side of the car is the gas input? <laughs> the left or the right? Right. So I put a little green dot uh, by the gas gauge, whether it was on the left of the gauge or the right of the gauge. And I'm very pleased to say that no longer do I have to do that because now the new cars I have have a little picture of a gas pump with an arrow going to the right or going to the left.
0: Yeah, I think they probably have heard you talk about it.
1: <laughs> I don't design. know where they got it, but, uh, <laughs> but the point is green dots are obviously a very simple and uh, not the most important thing in the world. Uh, but it's an example of how just simple little things can make a difference. And there are more important things that can make much bigger differences. And often people have figured it out by themselves.
0: You're talking about kind of the basis of user experience research, which is watch what people are doing and then do analysis from that. So how do you fit that into the democratization of design?
1: Well, here's what we're doing in Appalachia. The Federal Communications Commission has did a study about uh, high bandwidth access across the United States. And then they correlated it with medical issues. And they discovered that the regions with low access to internet, especially at high bandwidth, had the highest rates of cancer and heart diseases and other problems. And so the National Cancer Institute got interested in this. And National Cancer Institute, the FCC, and some private companies are all involved, and the UCSD Design Lab is helping to lead this initiative. We're working closely with the University of Kentucky Cancer Research uh, Center, and we hired an anthropologist, and she went off and she spent many months just kind of going around, understanding the people and what is going on, and meeting them and talking to them, and she came back with some really important insights. But the important thing is that she did it by collaborating with people. She didn't say, I'm this foreign anthropologist coming in and I'm going to just watch you. No, but, but she became a part of the community. And uh, one of the things we learned to our surprise is that if you really want to work with them, you do it through the churches because the churches are dominant in that area and they form communities. It isn't, the religion is important, but actually the more important is that it's a, it's a community group who get together and discuss. And that's where all of the insights can come from. There's also already community health workers, and they have to be part of the answer because these are people who live and grew up in that community, but are also trained to be health workers. So they are going to be the key, they and the churches. And we are now starting to work with them. The University of Kentucky health workers, they can't be the complete solution because they're outsiders. Okay? They don't live in that community. They're very well educated. Uh, they work with them. They provide the important essential medical equipment and experience. But you see, this whole problem is going to require all these different dimensions. It's political. It's cultural. It's economic. One of the problems they have is lack of jobs. That's in part one of the major causal problems. But we understand this only by working with the people who live there
0: and when you say collaboration with the community you don't mean just asking them questions and observing them do you mean actually having parts of those community engaging in the same type of work that the anthropologist for example might be doing
1: well in part but even more so they don't need to get an anthropologist or an ethnographer because again they live in the community they visit these people's homes they themselves already have that knowledge and so what we want to do is build on it and they are going to control the the actions. So it's less of a collaboration than um, we act as facilitators, okay? Because collaboration means we come in and, and together we do something. Well, that's true, except I want them to be in charge.
0: I'm just trying to, for our listeners, get a picture of how they might use this in their own work.
1: In your own work, I think it's finding little areas where people have come up with insightful solutions, insightful uh, ideas, and then helping them create them. In this particular study, um, (laughs) we just had a two hour long phone call yesterday, in fact, with all of the participants uh, from the FCC, from the National Cancer Institute, from the University of Kentucky, from community health workers, and from our side. Because there's a lot of interest in what we're doing, and the question is, can we disseminate the knowledge? And the answer is, not yet. So the answer to your question about exactly how it works, we don't na- know, because we're just at the beginning of the project. And these things take a long time, because these are very complex issues, because there are so many factors involved. So. We have started. We have enabled a large number of studies and people and people who are working with us. But we haven't yet done anything that has changed the lives of the people. That's what we're about to do. That's what we're just starting. Come back in two or three years and ask me. But let me also point out that we are following the traditional design process here about what we are doing. That is to say, we are doing small prototypes. We're testing this, we're testing that, we're working with people this way and that way. And we fully expect that a lot of what we want to do will turn out to be wrong. And that's why we always iterate. We're gonna do these little things and we'll say, ooh, that was a bad idea. Or that had some good parts and some bad parts. Let's modify it and try again and again and again. So when you ask me next year, I may have a slightly different story because, well, we're designers. What we do in design is we learn a lot from our experiments and usages. And by the way, whatever works in Appalachia probably would not work in New York City. It would not work in India. It would not work in a different location where there are different cultural values.
0: This is really interesting to me, and I'd love to see how it does end up scaling out in this community-driven design. I think that's very exciting.
1: Yeah, actually, I've been trying to write a paper, (laughs) except I don't have any time anymore. But (laughs) we have all sorts of people arguing for different kinds of design. There's human-centered design. Actually, we're starting to call it people. I don't want to call you a human. I want to call you a person, which is the traditional, there's a the double diamond approach where you start off with ethnography and then you do ideation and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's co-design and then there's participatory design and then there's design through research or research through design. And the research through design community says, well, actually quite often, let's just do something. Let's not do all this ethnography and all these studies and so on. Let's just actually build or do something and introduce it because when we do that, we're going to learn a tremendous amount and we'll learn it maybe faster and maybe better. But when we introduce it, we have to always remember that we're just doing this as a test probe. And so we're going to throw it away after we've learned from it. And then there are other kinds of designs as well, other different names. Service design is different, for example. But actually, when you step back and look at all of these, they all have some common principles. And what I would like to do is extract the common principles. And some of them are focus on the people. Another is that these are all complex systems. And so you have to optimize the system, not just the individual components. Optimizing individual parts of the system often causes harm to the entire system. So you have to think of it as a system, and then it's often community-based. And you have to focus on the people and you have to iterate because uh, with these complex things it doesn't really ever work the way you think it's going to. So be flexible. And of course, try to solve the fundamental deep problem, which is what the ethnography is about. What is really the underlying issue? And in a system, it's not easy because in these complex systems there's often no single cause. It's a feedback system. And sometimes, look, smoking is harmful. It kills you, but it kills you 10 or 20 or 30 years from now. And so there's the feedback loop is very, very slow. And that makes it very difficult for other problems to find what the real underlying causal aspects are.
0: Well, I feel like we have just packed a large amount of really wonderful information into this short period of time. I'm wondering if you have any parting wisdom for the average designer or researcher who does want to make a difference in the world, and they also want to keep their job at whatever e-commerce or ad agency or what have you. How can the average UX professional make a difference in the world?
1: It is important that we actually do the jobs that we're hired to do. There are lots of opportunities in any community to do outside work, to be volunteers to work with whatever design society you belong to. There are numerous UX design groups and other kinds of design groups around the the country, around the world. You can go off and try to find what some of the issues are in the local community and work with them. It actually helps enrich your own life, by the way. So we've done that in San Diego. We formed something called the Design Forward Alliance, uh, moving forward through design. It's an alliance of existing design groups. So we decided, we didn't want to start yet another design organization. So the members are the UX design community and the graphics design community and some of the advertising community and we're bringing in more architects and builders because they're the ones who make real differences in the city. And by bringing in the existing organizations, we form a common theme and we can therefore say, here's a really important issue, why don't we band together to work on it? And it's a volunteer organization and people can volunteer. It makes people feel good and it accomplishes good.
0: That's wonderful. There are a few of those here in Seattle as well. I'm sure there are across the globe, but in your local community, I think is a really, really important point.
1: And let me comment that, when I describe what I'm doing, quite often people say, well, what's new about that? I mean, what about this? And they'll talk about an organization that's doing similar work. And they expect me to be disappointed and no, I'm excited Uh, (laughs) because I know that there are lots of groups around the world who are already working in these directions. And so what that does is, first of all, it sort of reinforces the notion that we're on the correct direction. And second, By bringing these groups together, we can be much more powerful. So I'm really excited to meet these other groups.
0: That's wonderful. Don, I'm sorry to have to say goodbye. This has been such a wonderful conversation. I just would really like to, again, thank you so much for joining me on UX Cake.
1: You're quite welcome. And I'll see you in Seattle.
0: So how do you think we could make a difference as UX practitioners? Do you have ideas, suggestions for some great causes and organizations you could share with the rest of us? Connect with the UX Cake community on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or our website at uxcake.co. You can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter there, so you can get updates and other resources. Join us next week for more great conversations with other UX luminaries, and be sure to share this with your friends and colleagues. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to UX Cake so you don't miss a bite.